coming up on Influencing Entrepreneurs. Being a CEO is, is difficult. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's wearing multiple hats. It's ultimate responsibility. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do, and people who, 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 have, who have done it, um, it, put it this way, I think sometimes when I look at the, the person turning the sign on the street, I'm envious of that job because it's a lot lower stress. After years of teaching entrepreneurship and consulting with numerous companies, I realized that when business leaders shared stories of their success, hardships, and mistakes, it always had an impact in the classroom. So I thought, why not share these real-life business cases for education and inspiration? I'm Kazmer Ward, and this is Influencing Entrepreneurs. On today's episode, we speak with John Epsi of Lobby CRE. John is the CEO of Lobby CRE, a disruptive data management platform for commercial real estate owners that helps them create value for themselves, their investors, and their bankers by combining and unlocking data across all of their sources. Prior to joining Lobby CRE, John has spent his career working with, starting, investing in, raising funds for, advising, and selling startups, and especially technology companies. He most recently was the founder and CEO of Level, a consultancy that was recognized as one of the top 6% fastest growing companies in America by Inc. 5000. John also has advised many leading tech companies, including Stratified in Charlotte and Nearform in Ireland. He has invested in and advises many promising startups, including Prion, 2U Laundry, Offline, C-Trax, Skipper, and Dirt Eat Clean. John hosts the Defiance Ventures podcast, in which he interviews founders and investors. All right, well, thanks for being here, John. Thanks for having me, Kaz. Let's start with the first question of, how does one become a serial entrepreneur? <laughs> well, usually it starts with a couple of failures, but being determined to, to, to get it right eventually. Um, but I, I, I think it's something that most people are born with, and hopefully their corporate experience doesn't beat it out of them. <laughs> So those first couple of failures, what were, can you give some examples in what you learned from them? Sure. So, so I was very fortunate that I always worked for uh, small business owners. So I worked in a couple different stereo shops where I was working directly with the owner or at a restaurant where I was working with owners of the restaurant. And so I think I always had it in my mind that it was something I might be able to do eventually. Um, but I did go into working in corporate jobs. I worked for a couple of, uh, for a sizable consulting company first. Still, I think it was still very entrepreneurial, but I didn't do anything on my own there. I was just working there. And then I ended up joining a startup that was actually very successful. I didn't start it. I was a big part of their success, but I didn't start that startup. But while I was there, I started trying doing side projects to kind of keep just things going that might be able to turn into something eventually. And frankly, two or three of those side projects never really went anywhere. I learned a lot about developing software and building products that I myself wanted to use, but I never, I, I, I call them failures in the sense that I never commercialized those, those products. I did have uh, then a product that I built for a friend and we, we actually got it launched and people using the platform and, and making money, but we decided that we really didn't want to do what we thought we would need to do to, to commercialize it. We just didn't think that it, it had legs after we got it out there. That was much more of a success in the sense that I got it onto the App Store 
had users using it, made a little bit of money off of it, but we ultimately shut it down. Uh, and then we, I created right on the heels of that another product that I would say was much more successful in the sense that not only did I get a product out there and users using it and generating money, uh, but Apple actually featured it on the App Store. So what type of products were they? Were they apps? They, uh, most of them were apps or web applications. One, one was uh, I actually started uh, getting into running in my mid-twenties and uh, I created a foot injury. <laughs> I ended up injuring my foot and the doctor, the podiatrist told me, oh, you can only get so much mileage out of a pair of shoes and I had no idea about that. Okay. <laughs> and so I created an app where I could actually track my runs and keep track of which shoes I wore and then I would know when, when to replace the shoes. And, and I just kept extending that product. And at first it was just a web app because this was probably 2003. This is really before there was an app for anything. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I could have maybe built an app that I put on the Blackberry store. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but it really, really people didn't map my run or, or those type of applications. That ultimately did turn into uh, an, an app. And, and I started looking into building an actual video interface for streaming workouts think P90X or, or, or the Beachbody workouts. But again, that one I tinkered so much and kept building the product that I never actually launched it on the App Store. I never put it out anywhere for any other users other, other than myself. And I think a lot, of, a lot of entrepreneurs make that mistake. They get focused on the product and you have to build a product, but you also have to build a company to sell the product and you have to find customers and do all of those other things. And, and too often people who come from an engineering background like myself get really wound up on the product and not the company. So you start kind of tinkering with tech company. Uh, with technology. So you yeah. start tinkering with your app. Yeah. You end up in the technology space more in a sales uh, CRM type format. How do you end up in that space? When I started out, so, so while I was in um, undergrad, I, I worked in a couple of stereo shops as I mentioned and I knew I learned how to sell, but I was also selling technology and I was fairly hands-on and understood how the stereos worked in cars and how to install them and all of that. So I always had kind of both a technology angle and a sales angle. When I first started my career after undergrad, I was a very heads-down developer doing pure development work, but because I had done sales before, I always would, work in working with my clients, I would always talk them into new projects, and which is, leads to sales. And um, I was very fortunate to have a mentor at my first job who he, he picked up on that right away, and he said, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna turn you into, you know, we're gonna put you down this management track so that you can go build business for us, not just build the technology," and then. That job, it was that company was uh, was uh, one of the dot com boom high flyers, but it was also starting to crash. And so I spent about I think three years with that firm, and they weren't very good at selling. They were very good at delivering technology, but they weren't actually all that good at selling. And as the dot com clients started to di literally disappear and stop paying their bills, they. Um, were in a constant state of shrinking the last year and a half that I was there. And I saw this group of, of um, entrepreneurs uh, that had started a company. They were probably eight or nine people at the time, and they were very good at selling, not very good at delivering software at that point. 
but they knew that they needed to build out the delivery capability and so they they brought me on board and again for the first I'd say probably six to nine months I was just doing really um, heavily de development focused projects for them um, with a couple of their telecom clients in, in Northern Virginia and again I was very lucky the COO of that company at the time he saw he saw that I could also sell and he he did the, he put me on a track to, 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 to become management and ultimately I became the COO of, of that company. So how do you balance that because the personality traits of your salesman and your software engineer in general are very very different black and white yeah and, and I'd put a third peg in there which is man the, the project management too because there's there's really those are usually three very distinct skill sets and three very different personalities. What does that do to you as a as a manager? Because there's a little bit of an identity crisis because the engineers usually don't like the sales guys and the sales guys don't. You're both, so you're kind of the best of both worlds and the worst of both worlds. Exactly, yeah, jack of all trades, master of none, right? Yeah. Uh, so there are people who have these personality traits. There were probably six or seven of us ultimately in that company by the time we ended up selling it to Red Hat I'd say there were six or seven of us who kind of straddled the line between salesmanship management and leadership and and technical development but there's no doubt that as you this is every engineers nightmare is that I'm, I'm good because I'm an engineer and I have these engineering skills but they they fade pretty quickly and if I get too wound up around the sales side or the management side I'm not going to have that engineering talent anymore to, to, lot, to, to fall back on. And I think there is some truth to that fear, but honestly, I think there's a muscle memory that you develop. I've never gone more than two or three years w without writing some sort of code myself. Um, I, I suspect if you went longer than that, you, you, may, you may lose those skills. But the way I've balanced the two is these side projects that, that I talked about. That was a, a very good way as I was selling and building out a new office here in the Carolinas for that company, I wasn't doing any development for our clients. So it was a very nice release for me to come home and spend two hours, or come, come back to a hotel and spend two hours developing code and learning coding and that sort of thing. So that's why I think also I never really productized that first product, because in many ways it was just a way for me to learn new technology stacks in a way that I wasn't able to as part of my career progression. It was a workout. Time. Yeah, it was a workout, exactly, yeah. exactly. So you, you mentioned that you, you end up with a company that starts out with about eight people that eventually sells to Red Hat. That's correct. We grew it, it was called a Mentra, and we grew it to, I'd say, 135 people at the time of the sale to Red Hat. So at some point along the way, being early on, I'm sure there's some equity play to where you become part owner within this company. There was, um, and in that particular case, um, the there was no equity upon joining the, the team. It was just something that after I had been there for a year and knew that I was adding value, I approached the, the, the owners and said, hey, I'd really like to have some equity in, in this. So, so let's talk about that approach for a second because a lot of people want to get in on the ground floor and there's also this understanding your first few hires, oh, I'm coming in as the file clerk, so I should be getting equity. And it, yeah. you hear stories of it that it works, but what are some misconceptions where people are 
assuming equity off the bat that it's just a falsehood? Well, first of all, equity is a finite resource, especially in a privately traded company. Once you get to bigger publicly traded companies, they can print stock all, all day. My experience has been that most people who join companies don't really appreciate and value that equity. Um, I've seen people where, it, um, at, a, at a later company that I started that I'm sure we'll talk about, we gave them equity. The equity's, in my mind, probably worth a million, million and a half dollars after two or three years of working, and they're coming to me asking for a $10,000 raise and saying that they're underpaid. And I say, well, this clearly isn't, and I get it, you can't necessarily put food on the table right. <laughs> with, with, with this equity that's locked up in, in a privately held company. But again, I've just, and that's an extreme example, but there's even lesser examples where we gave equity to people and, 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 and they didn't really value it uh, the right way. And in retrospect, in many of those cases, I would have rather held on to that equity myself or used it to incentivize people who did value the equity. How would we educate employees that are getting equity? Because it is frustrating because we want to take it straight to the bank. Yes. How could you persuade me that that equity has value? Well, and that's just it. I, I look at those cases not as something's wrong with the person who, who has the equity. It's, it's, me. it's on me as a, as a leader and the other members of the leadership team to be more transparent in terms of what we think the value of the company is and, and for them to understand what we're building. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's something that I started doing more of once I started to realize that people weren't, weren't really valuing the, the equity. You know, I, I don't know if it, there may also be a more technocratic approach to go with it, which is a lot of people don't understand what an option is, what a strike price is on an option. They don't understand what a profit interest or an economic interest is. They don't understand how companies are valued. They don't understand the accounting behind it. And I think if we educated people a little bit more on how those things work, they may have a better appreciation for what the real value of the equity is. But let's be honest, it is, it's complicated. And when you look at, at an equity plan and then the, the grant documents, they're written in lawyer speak and they're very hard to parse uh, if you don't know what, what you're looking at, if you don't have any experience with it. And I think all of those kind of combine, uh, and, and then people see their neighbor who isn't getting any equity but is, is on the fast track at a bank and getting big raises and big bonuses and they start to think oh well is, it, is this really worth it because it is it is a very deferred thing the value of that equity I mean I joined a mentor in 2003 and our liquidity event was in 2008 so for those five years right it, I, it, it was worth nothing to me in, in real terms and and so I think it is hard for people to think that far ahead and it's not guaranteed that it's going to happen that a mentor could very easily not have sold and then and then the equity might have been worthless frankly and it's a mentra a mentra that's mentra. correct so I'm employee number eight or nine at Amentra, and you, you give me stock options. And you're right, my friends are at the banks and in healthcare, and they're getting huge bonuses. When will I start seeing that deferred compensation in my pocket? And that's a conversation I'm sure you have. Sure. And it's the reality is in most tech startups, and most startups in general, it's going to be a liquidity event, which is an exit. an exit of some sort. And that's typically what I've seen in most of the equity plans that I've been involved with or looked at is a change, they call it a change of control event. And that's going to be some percentage of, of ownership or some percentage of the company being sold to investors. Uh, the, the reality is 
if a private equity firm comes in, and that was an outcome that we almost pursued at Amentra rather than selling to Red Hat. And most of the deals that we looked at from private equity, they were going to buy uh, some percentage of the company, a controlling interest, maybe a non-controlling interest. That would trigger a, a change of control event by the way the plans are written. Uh, the, rea the reality is with a lot of private equity investments, they want some percentage of the money to go into the pockets of the people running the company and they want some percentage to go onto the balance sheet so that you can grow the business. And so a private equity event will create some liquidity for the owners to, to, to some extent, but it's really on a buyout. Now, realistically, there is a chance in some companies where they start paying distributions rather than sell the company. And as an owner, you may or may, depending on the way that that equity is structured, you may or may not participate in those distributions. Um, I think that for most people, if they, if distributions were paid and, and were a reasonable amount of, of, of income for them, they'd be very happy with that outcome, but it just doesn't happen that often. Usually there's a, there's a better way to use that money to grow the business and, right. and to create wealth through investing in the business. So most, most companies I've been around don't end up paying distributions. Um, usually if they do, it's just because, okay, we've, this is just such a big thing, we don't want to sell it, but we don't, you know, we don't have any real growth opportunities that would change the game for us, so we're just going to pay, pay distributions. And some companies will pay tax distributions where it's just we're going to cover it because this is a pass-through entity. So kind of recapping, we've got to educate the partners we bring on and what the valuation actually is. And then we actually have to communicate what the path to monetary compensation would be based off of that valuation, whether it's a form of distribution or an eventual exit. And you can see where the confusion comes from. Absolutely. Well, and then there's the flip side, which is, and it's, it's interesting because if you do get them wound up about the valuation and excited about it, and then buyers come knocking at your door and you don't think it's the right time to sell, I've seen that too where people are like, oh, we need to sell right now because look at all this money that we could get from this. Right. So a venture, they eventually exit, they sell to Red Hat. Um, you, you amass some form of wealth from the transaction. So you're done, you've been retired since the 2000s? <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it wasn't the kind of money where, where I could just uh, walk away and, and never work again, but it was the kind of money where I could do whatever I wanted, or I had a lot more flexibility in terms of what I wanted to do. And yeah, I, I, I could have probably, maybe if I wanted to uh, move to Jamaica, and uh, again, I probably could have retired on it, but, uh, but, but, it, but for me, it really wasn't about the money and for me I didn't feel like I had done everything I wanted to do at a mentor. I was 31, 32 years old at the time, full of energy, a lot of ideas, had started making a lot of connections. It's interesting as you as you go through an exit, especially to a company like like Red Hat, you just meet a lot of really interesting people who open a lot of a lot of doors uh, for you. And even at a mentor, I remember looking at job offers that were much 
higher paying and had stock options attached to them and that sort of thing, but I felt like more than anything I was learning. I was getting an education from Mike, Mike, and Matt, the three, three guys that were running it. When we sold to Red Hat, I stuck around for two years, which was half of my half of my earnout cycle. Still learned a lot from Red Hat and was building a great network there. But it, it was time for me to go out and, and do something else. There was just a, an itch that, that wasn't being scratched by, by Red Hat. Fantastic company. They take care of their people. They, they've taken care of everybody that stayed behind from Mementra. Um, but, it, it, but it was time for me to move on and, and go do other things for sure. So you moved on and you start another company up called Level. Before, yeah, before that, we started a company um, called NextGrid, which was a smart grid company. And Myself and a couple of the guys from Amentra, as well as the bankers, funded NextGrid, and then I I joined as a founding COO to help uh, help commercialize the the technology. I I spent about two and a half years doing doing that, and uh, we raised probably close to ten million dollars during that time period. Um, and what product? Was it? It's it's what's called smart grid technology, which is basically connecting the, the power grid or the water meters or your gas meters. <clears throat> and so we built a, a module with, that we actually built here here in Mooresville. Actually, uh, our contract electronic manufacturer, General Microcircuits, is based out of Mooresville. We build these these chips that we then have power companies or utility companies install on all of their meters and on some devices kind of throughout the network. And then we have them install, for lack of a better term, a whole bunch of wireless routers that then communicate with one another and with all of those chips. And so it allows the power companies to respond in real time. So they can see, oh, we just added a new, we just brought a new neighborhood on, or the demographics of this neighborhood have changed. We can see that the power consumption, we, we didn't build the right grid for it. And they can see that in real time through a web portal, whereas, Without this type of system, they're driving by once a month and reading the meters. And so when you are only reading a meter once a month, you can generate a bill, but that's about all you can really really do with that. But you can imagine that if you're starting to get a read every three minutes or every 30 seconds or every even every 15 minutes to, to earn some sweat equity, that just would not have been a possibility with, without the, the exit event, the liquidity event at Amentro. You, you get bored, you move on to level. And how does that come to be? Well, so Level started when I had an idea for a credit card app that I wanted to build, actually. And um, I met up with a, with, with a longtime banker who had a very, very strong background in payments and, and technology. And we built the product. And we called it Reward Summit. And it was an app. We got it featured on the App Store. We learned a lot about user experience and building modern web applications that are native to the cloud. Um, but we never really figured out how to make money with that. And so we created a consulting company called Lata Partners. Um, Lata is a name that's on a whole bunch of buildings right. here in town. And, and we had a contract lined up to do some consulting and we needed a name of a company. So we, we, we took the name Lata Partners. And Chris and I would go deliver um, software or architecture reviews for um, for big companies on behalf of a couple of different software companies, Red Hat being one. Um, Pivotal and VMware uh, and EMC being being the other other vendors, and it was nice because they would let us. We'd go in and do a week or two weeks of consulting for companies like McDonald's or J.P. Morgan or State Farm, Gallo, and we could generate enough cash to keep the lights on for the Reward Summit product that we that we had built. 
At some point we started hiring people because we weren't spending any time on the product. Um, and as luck would have it, we never spent time on the product. We were never able to hire enough people to get ahead of the workload that we had on the consulting. So we eventually shut, shut the, the, the product down and focus 100%. We brought on Matt Ernst, who uh, was the founder of Amentra that I've mentioned. And he was also an investor in NextGrid. And Matt and I were talking one day and I said, I've got this consulting company and it's getting out of control. I, we started it just to kind of funnel money into to the development of, of our product and we've never done it, never been able to do that, but we've now got 12 people and we've done a million dollars in revenue in our first year. And so Matt took a look and he said, you know, uh, he, he looked at our numbers, uh, he and I sat down and talked, he met Chris, the three of us talked, and, and, and then he met our team, he talked to a couple of our customers, he said, I think you're onto something here. I think this could be a lot bigger than what we did with Amentra. I'd like to put some money into it. I'd like to join as an operating partner, not a full-time role, but really roll my sleeves up and help you guys rebrand. And I think that we could, we could, we could grow this thing uh, really fast. And so that's when we rebranded to Level. And, and it worked really well. We ended up doing $4 million in our second year of existence. And at the end of our second year, we, we were now 40 people. And, we were really at that point geared up to go on to bigger, bigger and better things for sure. So now is it level forever? Are you done with level? Or? Yeah, so it's interesting because we, we ended up growing level to about 36 million in revenue in 20, um, 2018. And by the end of 2018, I mean, that's, a, that's a, an incredible run to go from zero to 36 million in, in really five years. Um, we were the top 6% fastest growing company in America by, as, as ranked by the Inc. 5000. We started to look at a couple of things that we thought we wanted to do. I had one vision for where I wanted to take the company and Matt and Chris had a very different vision. And, and it really came to a head. Um, we were looking at doing an acquisition. We were looking at some international expansion. And, and, and it just got to a point where the visions were so divergent that we, we knew that we needed to part ways. And so I stepped down as CEO in September of last year. And, um, and then Chris took over as the CEO and Matt got a lot more involved in the company. And they've, they've since executed, I'd say almost flawlessly on the strategy that they wanted to execute on. And the company looks very different in some ways than it did when, when, when I was running it. I'm still a shareholder in it. Um, I, I still follow everything that they do on Twitter and LinkedIn. I still talk to Matt and Chris pretty regularly. Um, but, but it's definitely, I, I can definitely see with what they've done that it was a very, very different vision than, than what my vision was for the company at that point. But it's still very amicable. It is very amicable. Yeah, we, we see stories where a founding member leaves, and we like to gossip and think, mm -hmm. "Oh, it was a disaster," yeah. and <laughs> John just couldn't see. But sometimes it's healthy too because yeah. the founding team isn't always the one that yep. takes it to stage two, three, or four. Exactly, exactly, and that's the thing. And it, it's, I, I think because things grew so fast, I wasn't really paying attention to where the partners wanted to go. But a partnership. You, you've got to try to, stay, it's a, you need to be very active about making sure that you're all on the same page or this type of thing can absolutely happen. And 
it, it, it was very amicable. I'll say that it's a difficult thing to go through. I liken it to a divorce, but a divorce with kids, where right. you, you say, you know what, we, we made this beautiful baby. That's what really matters, not, you know, not, not personal feelings at this point. And I think because all three of us focused on that and not on the personality issues, it, it was very amicable. And we've since invested in, in companies together. We've looked at other companies. We, we talk very very frequently um, and, and so yeah absolutely an amicable thing and, and it's interesting because I got reached out to the day that everything went down well not the day it all went down but the day that it got published in the Charlotte Business Journal what had happened everybody came out of the woodwork and four or five people that I n knew pretty well had had something very similar happen where 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 they just had a disagreement with their founding partners and and had to go different ways and all of them it was painful in, in different ways but but it was also very helpful to have that support network like, like anything that you go through when you can find people who have shared the experience it's it's very 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 helpful to to, to get through that kind of thing so you take that hard experience and where do you end up? Well, so first I did some advisory work for a couple different tech companies in town, um, really just to see what I thought I wanted to do next. Because um, again, I knew that I wasn't done. Um, I wasn't ready to retire. And, and so I did some advisory work and I looked into doing a joint venture with a firm out of the UK that I've done work with through the years at Level and went pretty far down the path of, of helping them commercialize um, a, a portfolio company that's doing very well in Europe and that they were thinking about bringing to the United States. That didn't end up working out for a variety of, of reasons. The idea behind that, um, I had talked to a, a longtime customer of Levels, uh, a guy by the name of Rob Finlay who owns several software and real estate companies and has done very well in commercial real estate and and he's once the thing with the UK wasn't working out and it was clear that that, uh, that I wasn't going to go that route he he said hey I want to I've built this product and I want someone to come run it for me so let's do kind of what you were talking about doing with with the British company and so that's what we did and that's lobby CRE which is where I'm I'm the CEO I've been the CEO for about 4 months now so is this it? Is this the last <laughs> entrepreneurial endeavor? Uh, I don't think it's the last entrepreneurial endeavor. It may be the last time that I play the role of CEO. Being a CEO is, is difficult. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's wearing multiple hats. It's ultimate responsibility. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. And people who, 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 have, who have done it, um, it, it, put it this way, I think Sometimes when I look at the, the person turning the sign on the street, I'm envious of that job because it's a lot lower stress than when you're having to make all of these decisions with imperfect information. Uh, that being said, I won't rule out ever being a CEO again. Um, I, I'll say that I'll always be involved in multiple companies. Lobby may be the last one where I'm working 50, 60 hours a week or whatever it takes to, 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 to get it going, but I wouldn't rule it out. So in closing, I'd like to recap what we've talked about. One of the things that fascinates me, it's something that's, that's been a challenge uh, early in probably both of our careers is we start in the tech space, we move on to consulting, we go into 10 different types of fields of study where we live in a society that if you go into banking, the perception is you'll be in banking forever. 
What advice would you give for someone so they can make the jumps that you've made? For me, I'm just a very intellectually curious person. If you tell me any fact, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to dig into it and try and figure out a little bit more about it. And I, if, if you can nurture that and cultivate that, I think it'll help you to be able to jump between things. I don't think it's for everybody. I think some people are more like my dad who spent his entire career with one company, with a, pu with a public utility company. There are definitely personalities that, that prefer that. But if somebody wants to be able to kind of move in and out of, of industries, number one, I think getting into consulting is a great idea because it just gives you exposure to lots and lots of different companies and industries. Uh, but I also think just, just uh, getting in tune with that inner intellectual curiosity and applying that to industries, but also to job functions. Um, I think, although I like engineering uh, and I like accounting and I like finance, I think if I did any one of those and nothing but those, it would probably drive me crazy. Um, I think it's good if you can, and not that you need to be able to check all of those boxes, but I think being able to check multiple boxes is is going to pay off for a lot of people in terms of a rewarding career, whether they're an entrepreneur or not. I think just being able to wear multiple hats makes for better business people in general. Um, but, it, but it's the same thing, that it's that intellectual curiosity. You know, what does that mean? What's a debit? What's a credit? Or Where does that intellectual curiosity lead you for the passion project you've yet to do? <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about that. I think that I'm really into um, health and, and fitness over the past six or seven years. I, I, I plateaued in terms of metabolism and started gaining weight and feeling unhealthy. And, and I was able to heal myself through a, a good diet and through intermittent fasting and through high intensity interval training. So my guess is at some point I come back to that health and fitness or health and wellness theme. I don't know exactly what that entails. I have invested in um, one company that's a healthy food concept, Dirt Eat Clean. It's a, um, I mentioned Matt from Amentra and Chris, Matt and Chris. Uh, Matt started it and then Chris and I have both invested in it and it's a wonderful healthy living um, concept, kind of farm to counter. Uh, there's also a keto paleo bar that's been developed here in Charlotte called Next Bar, and I've invested in that. So my guess is that there's something, whether it's supplements or a gym concept or something along those lines, at some point I'll, I'll probably get a little deeper than you know a couple of passive investments like what I've done in the space. All right. So kind of in sum up, uh, healthy brain, healthy heart? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Cass. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this is helpful for your students. All right. Yeah, and we'll, uh, your website's uh, provided below, so if anyone wants to find out more, we'll have it on the screen. Excellent. All thank right, you. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash Education or visit influencingentrepreneurs.com to catch up on previous episodes with Casimir Ward.